The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is M.I.P. With Masamela Matsumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. My good friends, let's welcome to Make It Plain today, author of Rich Thanks to Racism, How the Ultra-Wealthy Profit from Racial Injustice. Jim Freeman joins us. He is, he directs the social movement support lab at the university of denver as we were just talking off night where the all-star game thankfully is moved he works with communities of color across the u.s to dismantle systemic racism and create positive social change he's a graduate of harvard law school and the university of notre dame and was an editor of the harvard law review he served under president obama as a commissioner on the white house initiative on educational excellence for african americans Jim, uh, pleasure to have you with us on Make It Plain, buddy. How are you? I'm doing fine, Reverend. Thanks so much for having me. It, it is a pleasure to have you. Um, rich thanks to racism. Um, very timely discussion for us, but not so, not so timely in the, the aftermath of the Trump era and the insurrection. A lot of people who are on the other side who may not want to have this conversation. That is certainly true. <laughs> um, and we see that, um, you know, to use the, your title, we see that made plain every day um, in, in this work. Um, nevertheless, I, I, I do think it's a very exciting time because more people than ever are recognizing the urgency of the moment, the urgency to end systemic racism once and for all. And, and I, for one, am optimistic that the movement being built right now can finally achieve that goal. Um, but I wrote the book because like you say, there's very little understanding of what and who stands in the way of that. Yeah. And, you know, in particular, I wanted people to understand that the biggest reason why systemic racism persists is that these dynamics, which are so devastating to so many people of color and communities of color 
are for a lot of large corporations and Wall Street banks enormously profitable. And, and they're the biggest reason why we have these deeply unjust policies on the books. And they're also heavily invested in preserving and expanding racial inequities still today, um, which is which you know I refer to as, as strategic racism. So I, I really wanted to write the book to give people a roadmap for what it's going to take to truly dismantle systemic racism. Because while, while it is very doable, as you say, there's still not enough people supporting these efforts and far too many people opposing them. Um, so when we talk about those who are uh, getting rich off of racism and you refer to them as, as profiteers in, in that regard, the racism profiteers, who, who are the people we're, we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're really talking about, in the, in the scheme of, you know, the whole population, a very small number of people, but probably more than most people would realize um, in terms of billionaires and multimillionaires who have invested deeply in these things. So some are, um, have become very high profile in recent years for related issues, such as the Koch brothers, right? Charles Koch. Um, and his late brother and the, the other ultra wealthy folks that they've organized over the years. But then also really talk a lot in the book about other large corporations, other Wall Street banks, many of whom have organized themselves, organized themselves politically within ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council that really has worked behind the scenes to advance and defend these policies over the years. And when we talk about ALEC and we talk about the Koch brothers, we've seen them directly involved in in legislation and voter suppression and other things um but but talk to us about how that translates in in into into profit for them sure yeah so you know in the book i focus on three issues in particular uh criminal justice education and immigration And, and i did that because there's probably not a more significant racial justice issue in the u.s right now than the massive overinvestment and the criminalization of people of color alongside the dramatic underinvestment in systems and strategies that would create healthier, safer, and more equitable communities. So if you break that down, you know, for example, we've dramatically expanded the criminal justice system and made it the catch-all solution for an mm-hmm. enormous variety of public health and safety issues. Mm-hmm. Then we took that same destructive and ineffective tough-on-crime approach and used it in the immigration context. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in education, we never in the history of our country have been willing to create a truly equitable education system. And so if you follow the money behind the policies that um, are at the root of all of those failings, um, what you find then is, like I say, Koch brothers, Alec, these ultra wealthy individuals and the, and the full answer of why they, how they profit. I cover at, at great length and in great detail in the book. But the short answer is because all of those dynamics are economically advantageous for them. They make money off of the prison industrial complex, off of immigrant detention, off of school privatization. They pay less in taxes when we as a society choose to dehumanize people rather than meet their basic human needs. Mm-hmm. And systemic racism is also extremely effective at controlling us and dividing us and causing us not to recognize our, our common interests. And so it helps them maintain their political and economic power. You, you describe too, and, and obviously we can see that in the, in the, the criminal justice industrial complex, but um, how the brilliance of our youth, and I take note of your role in education in the Obama administration, but how the brilliance of our youth has been squandered, hasn't it? 
It, it really has. And, and yeah, one of, in fact, one of the chapters of, uh, of the book, uh, I called the squandered brilliance of our disposable youth. Because that's really how we've treated our young people. And we do that when we fail to recognize the gross inequities that exist in our education system. When we fail to respond to those inequities with the urgency that's required. And not only that, we make things harder on them. We make their lives harder. And a lot of that is bringing in some of those criminal justice policies into our schools, right? Where we're criminalizing young people um, in our schools um, for the same thing that um, virtually every adult I've ever met did with very, very different consequences, if they faced any consequences at all. Mm-hmm. And so it is sort of an unimaginable tragedy of how much human brilliance we have squandered really every year, every day, every month, and certainly across generations. And the, the, the urgency to act could, you know, could not be any greater in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I was on call was yesterday, day before, with the head of the teachers union in Los Angeles. And as they are negotiating reopening schools, she said something I had not thought about, but makes perfect sense. But now I regret hearing about it. And that is, you mentioned criminalization, how we now have to be prepared that if and when schools reopen, and and young people getting vaccinated or not or going through the the traumas of this pandemic because we still don't know the full impact of the traumas on them staying at home being like that 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 is going to add another layer of criminalization on these young people come back into school you know and i hate to even repeat it but she's right and you're right i mean there has been an an overwhelming amount of criminalization of young people rather than real investment in educational opportunities. You know, even now, and immigration is one of your points. I mean, we talk about the African-American community, we talk about immigrant immigrant community. So what are we supposed to do with young people? What, what, what future do we have if we don't invest in them, whether they're young people of color born in the United States or young people of color escaping persecution coming into the United States? And so could we then say, just even on the immigration piece, that those who are combating that and don't want to help create a space for young people like that themselves are some of those that would probably be in the category of, of, of upholding the, the, the racial profiteering? Absolutely. I mean, so this is even before COVID, mm-hmm. where we had millions of young people um, who attended schools with police in them, but no social worker, but no school psychologist, but no school nurse, Mm -hmm. right? We like to think of our our schools as uh, institutions of youth development. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that they've never been organized that way. They've never been funded that way. They've never been staffed that way. And that's only gotten worse over time. So I too am, am very concerned about what's going to happen um, uh, when when these when these young folks come back into school with you know only greater needs than what they had when they when they you know were forced to leave last year, and they're going to find schools that either continue to be um, ill-equipped to handle what they're bringing to the building every day, or in some cases they're going to be you know 
um, even more hostile to their needs and to their interests. And so, you know, while, while the book was definitely focused on how um, a small number of people have through their investments in advocacy organizations and media organizations and think tanks and so on, how they have created the, the sort of ecosystem um, to support systemic racism. It's also true that, you know, they're not doing all the day-to-day work, those billionaires, right? The rest of us um, have, um, or at least many of the rest of us have played a, a significant role in that. We are their foot, sho- foot soldiers, basically. Mm-hmm. We have been conscripted by them to uphold these systems. And that is an outstanding example of that, um, is that, you know, we have spent far too many of our resources filling communities, particularly black and brown communities, with police officers um, and prosecutors, um, whereas we, we're not investing in mental behavior health, we're not investing in affordable housing, we're not investing in all these things. And, um, and you know, this is only, as you say, only going to get worse um, as we start to open up as a society again. Um, and, and in fact, I know you have a, um, a chapter uh, entitled Tough on Crime for You protect and serve for me, <laughs> right? Um, serve and protect for me. And that, that is that, that, that double standard and the criminalization we talk about. A- again, speaking of, of school, and, and it's funny you mentioned that too, because we, we talked about that the other day too, about one of the conditions, one of the demands of the, the teachers union was that we got to have nurse in every school. We can't have one new nurse serving 25 schools. Got to have nurse, got to have social worker. We got to have people to, to, to provide the mental health counseling because, you know, this 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 thing has changed us all. Give us a glimpse, though, if you would. And I know there's a lot of detail in the book. Give us a glimpse, if you would, of some of. So we've got banks and corporations that profit off of school closings themselves, don't they? They do. You know, we talk about systemic racism. We're, we're not often talking about um, the school privatization movement, um, but it's in many ways a quintessential example of it. And you know, how support for charter schools and vouchers has become the one consistent thread that ties these folks together. They all put money into charter schools and vouchers. And I'm not talking about, you know, a little bit of money to a local charter school that they want to support. I'm talking about billions of dollars. And, you know, I track in the book $3.2 billion from just 10 sources into just 50 organizations that that have really been driving this movement. And so it, it's very much a billionaire-led movement. And, and there are a number of reasons why they benefit from it and from the harms that result from it. Because it's not just that we're opening up these new schools and there's no consequences to that. There's real trauma and harm caused to folks in, in public schools that are closed down as a result, right? Or that see funding siphoned away from them as a result. And these have been, really been devastating in the communities most affected. And these are almost entirely, again, black and brown communities that have been most affected by these issues. And there are so many ways in which the ultra wealthy have been able to, to profit very directly from a privatized system of education, such that pretty much every Wall Street investment bank now has their own division devoted to profiting off of these issues. So it's you know, one way to think about it is, you know, in their eyes, it's taking a $600 billion sector and moving it from public hands to private hands and all the economic opportunities that go along with that. And yep. that's really what we've seen play out. More MIP after this message. Hey there, this is Christina Gonzalez, and I'm so excited for you to check out my new podcast, Politics of Food. 
On this show, we explore the political, economic, and social implications of food creation and consumption, both locally and worldwide. Should we eat first or should we protest first? Like, okay, <laughs> let's organize, let's talk to the press, let's get our word out, and then let's sit down and eat. Follow Politics of Food with Christina Gonzalez at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. And what's even scarier is that, you know, the business interests of doing this seem to not care about the regeneration of a workforce that can can keep their business or their eco- or the economy as a whole to be thriving. It's as if they've discovered, you know, well, we may not even need these human beings anymore because we figured out a way to do this and make be rich ourselves and to die rich. And we're not going to invest in posterity, which is where these young people are. Am, 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 am I right about that? Have, have they kind of reached that place <laughs> and where they feel like they can afford to, to shun the investment in human development, uh, where some other countries, I guess, in the world are doing the exact opposite with their schools and, and their regeneration. We, it, it seems they don't want to do that here. Am, am I wrong about that? You are not wrong. <laughs> in fact, I would say that that has always been the case. Okay. Right. We, we've never, we've never, in the history of our country, invested in the education of every young person such that they would have a full and equal opportunity to thrive. Right. That's never happened. Um, I think what's changed now is because of this newly privatized system, they have more power over that system. And so from their perspective, you know, it, I don't think it should be surprising that they're doing what they're doing because they're, they're very consistent, right? They, um, you know, when the private sector goes into an industry, they always do the same thing, which is try and get as much of the revenue for themselves as they can um, and try and make as many profits as they can by cutting costs in areas where they deem it to be inefficient, right? And, and it's never been deemed to be an efficient use of resources to give everyone, give every child um, a high quality education that meets their developmental needs. That's never been the case, right? It's never been the case that we wanted, that we were um, willing to invest in a, a well-paid, well-supported teaching force. It's never been the case that we were willing to, um, to meet the needs of young people with disabilities. That, that's never been the case. That's always been deemed to be inefficient. What's happened now is they have more control over the system. So in in privatized local school systems, that's where we see the, the cutbacks, right? That's why we see even more punitive and harsh school discipline. That's why we see it being harder for families of, of kids with disabilities to get their needs met. That's why we see it it's harder for why they where they have a, a preference for a younger um, non-unionized teaching force because that's not in their view to be an if it, considered to be an efficient use of resources. And I think that's obviously that's been most harmful to black and brown communities thus far. But if you follow it to its logical end, that threatens the educational opportunities of almost every child in America. So I think everyone has to be very concerned about that. So that's the school. Now, in terms of the prison industrial complex, does it help that Joe Biden is saying he don't want to deal with that anymore and he wants to separate the government and and all of that, and all of us from that, because I know a lot of these people make profit off of private prisons. It, does, does that type of initiative from the federal government help 
that branch of, of, of the issue of dealing with that part of the issue? Yes, to an extent. But private prisons in the criminal justice contact, context are actually just a pretty small part of the problem. And um, it, it's a more significant issue in the immigrant detention world, where that represents about 60% of immigrant detention facilities are these for-profit facilities. Um, it's smaller in the criminal justice context. So um, it's important, but it's a small piece. I mean, just talking about the prison industrial complex, with our incarcer incarcerated population today, what folks have recognized, folks who make money off of these things, is that our incarcerated population is larger than the entire population of 15 U.S. states, right? You're talking about 2 million people. So to meet the needs of 2 million people, there are dozens and dozens of ways in which you can, you can make money off of that, right? You're talking about not just private prisons and the real estate that goes into that, which have been huge parts of this system. You're also talking about how you feed those people, how you provide health care to those people, how you manufacture the uniforms for those people, how you transport those people. On and on it goes. And then not only that, we, we usually just talk about our incarcerated population. But the fact is that we have another 6 million or so people on probation or parole. And this is sort of the new aspect of, of this dynamic is what we call the treatment industrial complex. So you see the Koch brothers and others who are investing heavily in privatized um, community corrections, it's now called. So they're making money off the fact that, yes, you know, those folks aren't in prison now, um, but they're still under control of the, the criminal legal system. And there are still folks who are making money off that. So what can we do? What would you say to people listening? Um, they can do what we can do. I mean, obviously, you are also an advocate of social justice movement. But but talk to us specifically about what you think people can do and, and what people can hold the government accountable, maybe even the new Biden administration accountable to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're talking about how you respond to the power of organized wealth, mm -hmm. I think there's really only one effective counterweight to that. And that's that's the power of of organized people. Right. So to resist. Um, this agenda and ultimately advance one that's more favorable to low income, working class, middle class families. We really need to build people powered organizations. You know, that, that, you know, having strong mass organizations, that really does represent the difference between winning and losing, you know, between having a powerful organized force pushing for change and merely having a, you know, a large number of isolated voices in the wilderness. So the two things I really, point folks towards um, in the book is one, really investing in grassroots racial justice organizations. And and by investing, I mean financial um, contributions if possible, because these folks are, are usually severely under-resourced, um, but also, the pe you know, people's time, their energy, and so on. Um, you know, all across the country, there are there are hundreds of these organizations in every state. These are the folks who have the best ideas for how to solve these problems because they're closest to those problems. But they need, you know, they need support because they are often severely outgunned in these fights. And then the second thing I say is that, you know, the beyond plugging into the organizations that are also that are already exist, we need to create new structures for more people to get involved, particularly for the members of communities that have been systematically excluded from the political process 
really for generations. So what I say is that really in, in every community in America that struggles with equity issues, which is basically every community in America, we need to create what I call community equity assemblies, um, where regular people can come together to learn about these issues um, and then get to work in dismantling them. You know, they don't need to be formal bodies, um, particularly initially. It's just places where people can gather together, find ways to collaborate, find ways to solve the problems that are showing up in their communities. And I think if we do that and folks invest in those kinds of structures and invest in each other and invest in their communities, then pretty soon, you know, those types of, of bodies can create really, really enormous change in a relatively short amount of time. And then we can finally, you know, make some meaningful progress um, in creating the just and equitable country we need. You know, that that sounds like um, the remedy. Um, Jim, I'm heavily involved in the reparations movement. We have over 170 co-sponsors on HR 40. As, as I'm sure you know, I mean, this will really establish not what forms reparations will take, but a commission to determine what forms reparations would take. I'd like to hear your thoughts about that in terms, I mean, if people have made themselves rich at our expense, I mean, ultimately to repair literally some of the damage done, it's going to take investment, as you said, not only in, in grassroots organizations, movement, work and all of that, but investment in the very communities that have been impacted and an infusion of capital for example, in HBCUs. I was in a meeting about that yesterday. I mean, all of those types of things have to be considered, don't they? 100%. I mean, you know, one thing I tried to do, Reverend, in the book was, is that I think our imaginations can get um, pretty small sometimes when we talk about these issues. And what, what I think this moment that we're in right now, what it does is it, is it invites us to reimagine who we want to be as a country and how we want to use our resources, right? And so, in the book, I, you know, I, I mentioned I, I focused on those three issues in particular. Now, if you eliminated, and I, I document this in, in one of the chapters, if you eliminated those three examples of systemic racism, and you implement some pretty modest wealth taxes and taxes on Wall Street and corporate America, you can pretty quickly free up a trillion dollars a year. So, from if you're like most people, like. That's, that seems like a big number, but it's hard to understand what you can actually do with a trillion dollars. So I tried to break it down. <laughs> and the, the, the point is you can do a whole lot with a trillion dollars a year. And so just to give one example, you can increase K-12 education spending across the country by 50%. You can invest hundreds of millions of dollars a year um, uh, and put the U.S. on the path to environmental sustainability. You can make public colleges and tuitions uh, public colleges and universities tuition free. You can hire a million new community health and safety workers, like mental and behavioral health experts and social workers, to create a humane alternative to mass incarceration system. You can create a universal pre pre K system. You can do all that with a trillion dollars. Now that's just one you know one example. There's lots of other things we should do. In, in particular, like you say, like targeting those investments into the communities that have been harmed most by by systemic racism. But the point is that if we're really going to address this issue, then we have to be thinking about how we're repairing the harm from what we've done for generations and how we are taking um, investments to, to scale um, in doing that. Because everything that we're talking about nationally and sort of the mainstream political discussion doesn't come close to addressing 
the harm that's been caused, doesn't come close to addressing the debt that is owed. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned imagination. Uh, what was it that Bobby Kennedy said? I love that quote. Some men see things as they are and ask why. I dream of things that never were uh, and say, why not? Mm. And, and why, can't, why can't we raise our level of imagination and dreaming? You know, don't give in to, you know, the, uh, the Joe Manchin model. I'm sorry. That's, that. <laughs> I couldn't help that. <laughs> well, we just don't do, we just not going to do nothing. I'm, I, I'm again, I can't do anything. But um, uh, this is important, folks. And um, what Jim has done is, is given us, speaking of imagination, another perspective in a way to look at things. Because I think sometimes we need different points of view to motivate us. We know that racism and discrimination and white supremacy exists. But y'all ain't making money off of it. That's what Jim's trying to get to see. It ain't just folks are just mean and evil and don't like you. They figured out a way to get paid off of disliking you. Doesn't that make you want to do something? I mean, th that's why we have to, to, to really get organized, as he's saying, and, and figure out a way to do this and confront these issues uh, and continue to vote. I mean, and Jim and I were just talking. I mean, just in terms of money, you got voter suppression. That's a big deal. For corporations to 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 raise an outcry about Georgia, that hasn't happened a lot historically. They they have business in Georgia. That's big money for Major League Baseball to be in the Braves' new stadium and then to pull out in that way. That's huge because they're thirty baseball teams. So you only get an All Star game every thirty years. They want the All Star game won't be back in Georgia until twenty fifty one. So so that's not a small thing. Yet we know Jimmy Carter and Hank Aaron and, and people like that. Hank Aaron, if he were alive, he would have supported it. But but that those are the type of things that we need to be about and and confront this right where it is. Uh, what, let me ask you one other question before we go. I live in the Bronx, so you can hear the music on that. What is your position on targeting directly some of the corporations themselves, either through boycotts or consumer accountability and consumer information campaigns. What what is 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 that as meaningful as us building our own movements and organizations on the ground? What what do you think about that? Well I certainly wouldn't discourage it, but what I would say is that unfortunately this isn't this isn't a select group of you know it's not like we can find one or two or five corporations and target them and go from there. Um, in fact, we don't even know who the group of corporations is, right? If you just look at ALEC, they have a report of 300 corporate members, 2,000 legislative members who are working usually in secret and they don't publish their roster. So we know from, from you know, leaked documents who some, some of those corporations have been and probably currently are, and we know what they're doing, but to make a meaningful dent in, the, in, in this issue, not only do we have to build multiracial mass movements, but we have to build those movements um, to get to the point where we can make a collective demand that corporate America and Wall Street as a whole, they cease and desist from, from this strategic racism, strategic racism. And not only that, but they get to work in supporting everyone else in dismantling, in dismantling it. And if they don't do that, you know, that's their choice. If they don't do that, then we have to start talking about 
other ways to reduce their, their power so that the rest of us can. Very well put. So, yeah, I, I hear your point. I mean, if it's 300, I mean, it's hard to boy- organize a boycott of 300. I remember something happened a few years ago and somebody had some ALEC list and they put out a thing. These are all the companies that we found in ALEC boycott all 50 of them. It was just us all 50. And it was it was overwhelming because then when you started going through it, so well, well, hell, <laughs> this is everybody. <laughs> we don't about nothing. So, you know, but but I, I do think I, I will say this as we go. And I've noticed this. I, I've learned and listened to other organizations of late, especially ones that have gotten like Color of Change and have gotten a lot of Fox advertisers off. There is power in consumer awareness and consumer information. And more and more companies are more threatened by brand damage than boycott. Boycott's bottom line. So they can look at that number. How many people actually have stopped spending money with us? And if it's not millions, they don't care. But if the brand is associated with something that's just horrendous, you saw what Delta did. Delta was like, they got, Brian Kemp wrote their response on the first day. Oh, this is great. And then when they looked, they said, oh, no, 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 we can't be a part. And Delta came right out and said, nope, don't include Delta in this. So, you know, whenever we can expose, I, I think that does help. But what's most important to folks is that we get on offense and build on and, and not surrender. And just because... We don't see it. There's other thing, Jim. Some of us, if we don't see it in the news every day, like we saw last summer, and, and there's an ebb and flow in movement. So people out in the streets like they were last summer, right now. But that's not an excuse for us to tire or fall back or relax, right? I mean, we, we should still, even more so, keep this movement alive by saying, you know, we're going to deal with all of this. We're going to deal with even how these corporations are profiting off of our misery. So, folks, we want you to check out Rich Thanks to Racism and be informed, more informed about what is going on, how the ultra wealthy profit from racial injustice. Uh, Jim Freeman is our guest. We're going to pray for Jim so he can take his little boy to the All-Star game. This is coming to Denver where he is. I hope so. Hope he can get get in there. That'll be great. And uh, if he loves baseball, that's a good kid. So... (laughs) kid after my own heart Uh, folks the book's available everywhere thank you Jim thank you so much Revan it was a pleasure likewise sir thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain please remember to listen like and wherever you get your podcasts please give the show a five star rating and please do spread the word let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic if all hearts and minds are clear it has been Made Plain Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.